excited about next Sunday night. We don't traditionally have services on Sunday evenings, but it's a chance for us to open our doors and welcome in other faith communities from, from Swain County, from Bryson City. And so we're encouraging you, please come, be a part of that. Help fill this place up. Let's be great hosts. Um, when the Baptists come, don't stare awkwardly at them. Um, they're normal to just yeah, kid. It'll be, it'll be a good time. I'm really excited about sharing the stage with, with John and Ted um, and some others, Wayne, from uh, other, again, other faith communities in Bryson. It'll be a neat time to kind of hear other perspectives and voices that are speaking to your friends and family in this area. So uh, like both Braden and Jody mentioned, we are in, uh, a, in a chapter of the book um, that Brian McLaren is walking with us through. It's called the We Make the Road by Walking. Um, we've been going through it uh, almost uh, a year in uh, Easter time, so we have uh, a, f- a few more months to go. It's going fast, but we'll be there in no time soon. But this week's chapter is called Stories That Shape Us. And so we're looking at different things from uh, our past, our, our stories um, currently that are shaping us, that are, have shaped us. And so I'm going to jump right in um, with this chapter. It's chapter 12. It says this, a little girl once asked her mother if the Bible story of Elijah flying to heaven on a chariot of fire was real or pretend. How would you have answered her question, she said. You might try to explain that sometimes a pretend story can tell more truth and do more good than a real one, as Jesus' parables exemplify so powerfully. You might explain how real stories often are embellished with pretend elements, Or you might respond as that little girl's wise mother did. That's a great question. Some stories are real. Some are pretend. And some of the very best ones use a mix of both reality and make-believe to tell us something important. What do you think about Elijah's story, she asked. Mother's answer didn't tell the little girl what to think. It invited her to think as a bona fide member of the interpretive community. See, whenever there's a community like this, people are different, different stories. We all have our own journey that we're on, our our past, our present. But when we are invited to engage stories of the Bible, we all become members of the interpretive community. And with that comes great responsibility because as we all know, stories from the Bible have been used and are continued to be used to cause great amounts of harm. McLaren, in his book, suggests that the good interpretation requires three elements. He says, science, art, and heart. He says, first, we need this critical or this scientific research into the history, the language, the anthropology, the sociology, uh, to wisely interpret the biblical story. Second, because the Bible is a literary collection, well, we need the artist's eyes and ears to wisely draw meaning from the ancient stories. And finally, required at every step is for you and I to be led by a humble and teachable heart that listens for the voice of the Spirit. And so as a first step in wisely interpreting Bible stories with science, art, and heart, we need to put each of those stories in its intended historical context. And so looking back at some of the stories that we've been reading over the last few weeks, like the story of Abraham and Sarah, we know historically that takes place somewhere roughly between 2000 and 1700 BC. 
And then Moses and the exodus of slavery in 1400 B.C. And then the conquest of the Canaanites in 1300 B.C. And after that, the people of God, would, they, they had formed these loose confederacy uh, under a, a series of leaders who are somewhat misleadingly, it says, called judges in the Bible. Tribal leaders or even warlords might be a more accurate name, McLaren said. That those were violent times, and some of those stories uh, from those times were horrific. The complete disregard of women and the low status they were given, the violent behavior of men. An example of the book of Judges, it ends with an account of a brutal gang rape, a murder and dismemberment of a young woman, followed by the aftermath of intertribal dissension and retaliation and kidnapping of innocent young women, And then it just gets darker and darker with King Saul to King David, then to Solomon. And the dream of the promised land became a dream of a promised time. The people began to long for a time when there would be peace again and unity and freedom and prosperity like in David's time, that that reign would return. And they expected and centuries went by and they waited for the Messiah to show up. And when Jesus showed up on the scene, there was an expectation of a warrior Messiah, a a militant Messiah, the son of David. He would rise up an army and overthrow the oppressors and restore religious order. And in anticipation, some were sharpening their swords, getting ready. But Jesus, he was living by a different interpretation of those old stories. And when he refused to conform to the old ways of thinking, he refused to give in to the expectations of a warrior. Instead of arming them with swords and spears and chariots, he armed his followers with faith, hope, service, forgiveness, and love. And with this fresh interpretation of the past, Jesus freed us from the violent thinking that empowered us for and empowered us for something greater, something more faithful, more peaceful. Question for you. Do you have a favorite movie or a book or a story that has had a significant impact on your life? Think for a moment. Maybe it's not a favorite movie or a book, but uh, something you remember, a story that you remember that changed your view of reality for you. Like, was there a character in that, in that story that you remember that inspired you? It's getting cold and I love it. It's supposed to snow tonight in Michigan. But this time, but this time of year is, is my favorite, is my favorite. It's also my favorite genre of movies, right? See, I love Christmas movies. Like, no lie, we've watched The Elf twice this week already, right? And I believe Jim Carrey's Grinch showed up at one time. So pretty excited, like Santa's coming. I know him, right? It's an exciting time. But as a kid, I watched Christmas Vacation, and I was inspired with Clark Griswold. I wanted to be that dad. And it's weird because it was the complete opposite of the father, the story that I had grown up around the holidays. I wanted something different. I wanted to be Clark Griswold. I wanted to have all the family over and spend all the money and take my family in the middle of nowhere to cut down a tree and forget a saw and have to dig it out. I mean, those, those are the things that I wanted. And it's more recently I realized, you know, I, I come to be aware of, of my own brokenness and I'm often not as loving as Clark was and more like 
the Grinch at times and my father, but, but it, was a, it was a story that inspired me, that it kind of drove me around the holidays. I, and that's why I love the holidays still. Recently, the movie, The Greatest Showman, how many people have seen it? Again, I, I talked about this before, that, that for me, that this is a story that inspires me. It inspires me for this, this church. If you haven't watched it, I, I recommend you seeing it as soon as possible. But you and I were shaped by stories like this, and that is a story that I want us to be shaped by. This Friday, I, I took my two oldest to see Bohemian Rhapsody. Has anyone seen that yet? Another, another amazing movie. See, I didn't know a lot about Queen or, or Freddie Mercury. I, um, I, I knew it, uh, it was a movie coming out I wanted to see. And, and I know it, it's just a movie. But still, it was great to see the story that had shaped those guys and, and that band. Uh, it gave it context. It gave it historical background. And maybe a, it wasn't 100% historically accurate, but it was pretty close. But you get to see into that story of one of the, the greatest bands ever. But... I also remember as a kid that there were a few movies I remember that had a, a certain significant negative impact on me. It was almost a conspiracy that Hollywood and the government had gotten together and they wanted to communicate a message and paint a picture for us about a certain country. And they would tell a story that would shape us in that way, the way that we looked at the outside world, the way that we looked at other countries and specifically the Soviet Union. The year was 1984, a small town in Colorado, a normal day of school, when all of a sudden paratroopers started to land outside the school window. Immediately, Emilio Estevez and Patrick Swayze took over. Anybody remember that movie? What's it called? Red Red Dawn, 1984. It was about a group of kids in a small town, right? Invaded by Russians and, uh, and on their own with some Small rifles and a few sandwiches. They took down the whole communist force, right? And that was a movie. I'm not going to lie. But that movie gave me the idea that Russians were bad and the USA was good, right? And if they ever parachuted into my hometown, well, my guys, we were going to fight back, right? And then 1985, another invasion. This time it was in the ring. And the champion of Apollo Creed took on Ivan Draga, right? You remember that? What movie is that? Rocky IV, right? And then Stallone, Rocky heads over to Russia to fight Ivan Dragan. We find out Ivan was a cheater anyways, and we still beat the Russians. And then 1986, Maverick and Goose and Iceman, they fought on the Russians too, right? What movie is that? Top Gun, you know, right? Movie after movie, and there's so many more, but led to 1987 when President Reagan said the famous words, Mr. Gorbachev, Tear down this wall, right? Back when presidents were into tearing down walls instead of building them. Excuse me, let me get a drink here. (laughs) All right. Wait, these stories, though, combined with the the real Cold War stuff that I, I understood as an adolescent, really shaped how I viewed the then Soviet Union, Russians, or any country that wasn't the United States. And I could imagine that the same is for you, that news and stories and headlines and propaganda shaped you and what you thought about foreign countries, people from other religions, people of other colors. War, stories of war, movies, books, 9-11, Desert Storm, war in Iraq and Afghanistan, ISIS, extreme radical Islam. I'm not that old, but yes, Vietnam. Violence and the stories of violence have shaped us as a culture. 
And it has spilled over into our faith. It has created this us versus them mentality. And it was no different for the people in the Bible. Theologian Greg Boyd says that the practices of that culture, the, the violence crept into the Bible. The stories of tribalism and kings and conquests were the stories that shaped the people of God and the writers of the Hebrew scripture, often referred to as the Old Testament. In his book, What is the Bible? Rob Bell says this, In the ancient Near East, your tribe was your family, your bloodline, your home, your identity. Your tribe was everything, and everyone belonged to a tribe. You worked for the well-being of your tribe, as did everyone else in the tribe. You accumulated possessions and fought battles and made alliances, all in the name of tribal preservation. And if you did something unacceptable, something shameful, it reflected poorly on your tribe. See, all tribes had God and goddesses, forces that they followed and worshipped, who they believed protected them and guided them. And so when you went into battle against another tribe, usually for land or to access resources or wealth, you were doing battle with them, but at the same time, your God was confronting their God. If you remember the story of David and Goliath. And when you won, you wiped them out and took all their stuff. Why? Because what if you had left some of the men alive and later they banded together? Or maybe the son of the king you killed became their leader and they came to get their revenge. You just, you couldn't risk that. Or maybe you killed the men and you took the women for yourselves and the donkeys and whatever else you wanted because those were called the spoils of war. There were rules about how it worked because tribes have been doing this for a long, long time. And so when you read those Old Testament stories about so-and-so accumulating many fighting men and certain numbers of swords and horses and camels or making alliances with king so-and-so, this wasn't a hobby. This was life or death, kill or be killed. And no matter how many battles you fought and won, you were always one battle away from the enemy crushing you and wiping out your entire tribe. And today, the culture wars, the us versus them tribalism hasn't changed much. Even in the church, the story of violence in culture has crept in and has shaped us. It has shaped our image of God. And so today, I want to ask the question, how can we live as followers of Christ in a world of violence and war? Violence, both physical, but also violence as generalized ugliness all around us. Violence in words and actions from the political rhetoric to the tinderbox of emotion so often exploding on social media. Our dinner conversations, the office, the coffee house. To answer that, we have to look at how Jesus lived. Did Jesus himself support some level of violence? Does the New Testament give perhaps a loophole to violence in the name of God? Because there are Christians, and given this political climate, some are very vocal about this, who believe that either individuals or the state can wage war with the blessing of Christianity. A very famous evangelical pastor, preacher Mark Driscoll, said this. He said, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg and a sword in his hand and the commitment to make someone bleed. That is a guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. What a tragedy. 
We are a violent people. We love violence. And when God created us in his image, we returned the favor and we created Jesus in our own image. I want to show you an example of this from an evangelical upbringing of mine and possibly yours too. But it's a story in the New Testament that modern evangelicals have used to defend the need for violence. It's an example of a story that has shaped our view of Jesus and perhaps justified violence, maybe righteous violence. But I've asked four friends and they volunteered. They're going to they're gonna each read. It's, it's a story that's found in all four Gospels. And I want them to each read it. It's just two verses per story. And then, I, then I'm going to talk about it. So, if Jody, if you'd start. This is Matthew 21, verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple and threw out all those who were selling and buying there. He pushed over the tables used for currency exchange and the chairs of those who sold doves. He said to them, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a hideout of crooks. Mark chapter 11, 15 through 18. They came into Jerusalem. After entering the temple, he threw out those who were selling and buying there. He pushed over the tables used for currency exchange and the chairs of those who sold doves. He didn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He taught them, Hasn't it been written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a hideout for crooks. The chief priests and legal experts heard this and tried to find a way to destroy him. They regarded him as dangerous because the whole crowd was enthralled at his teaching. When it was evening, Jesus and his disciples went outside the city. Luke nineteen forty five through 48. When Jesus entered the temple, he threw out those who were selling things there. He said to them, it's written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a hideout for crooks. Jesus was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests, the legal experts, and the foremost leaders among them, the people were seeking to kill him. However, they couldn't find a way to do it because all the people were enthralled with what they had heard. The Gospel of John, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who were selling cattle, sheep, and doves, as well as those involved in exchanging currency sitting there. He made a whip from ropes and chased them all out of the temple, including the cattle and the sheep. He scattered the coins and overturned the tables of those who exchanged currency. He said to the dove sellers, Get these things out of here. Don't make my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it is written, passion for your house consumes me. Thank you, guys. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, written roughly the same time, about 40 to 60 AD. John's gospel, almost 40 years later. The first three tell a very similar story, but if you picked it up on the last one, there was something just a bit different that John included. It's clear from the basic plot that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that Jesus organizes the poor and the disenfranchised in Galilee. And then he heads towards Jerusalem on a walking uh, campaign of nonviolence. He enters the city riding a donkey uh, in a peace march. He cases the temple and the next day engages in a peaceful civil disobedience by turning over tables of the money changers and preventing people from coming and going. After denouncing this den of robbers, Jesus teaches the good news of love 
compassion, and justice. But note in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is no mention of a whip, no talk of violence, no notice of the animals. The whole event probably lasted a mere five minutes, but the crowds might have stayed for hours to listen to the teacher. As anyone who has engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience knows, this was a classic symbolic direct action, and it needed to be done. The Jerusalem temple built by Herod at the beginning of the century was held up as the one and only place where God dwelt. We have nothing quite like it today. It, it combined worship and commerce and local government, uh, execution site and imperial control. This would be like Washington, D.C., containing a building with the Pentagon, the Capitol, the White House, the Wall Street, the World Bank, Citibank, Goldman Sachs, Walmart, the National Cathedral, and the Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, all rolled into one, God's home. And the faithful were told to pay God a visit each year. And so every Passover, they made the long trek to Jerusalem and paid a hefty fee to enter God's sanctuary. The population tripled to over 180,000 people. Over 18,000 lambs would be purchased for slaughtered for the holy sacrifice in the temple. And a heavy tax was charged for all of this commerce. In effect, the temple had a national bank. It offered loans. It kept track of debts and charged money for unclean sinners so they could pay with holy temple money. Another fee would be added for the money changing. Women, poor people, and other outcasts had to purchase expensive doves so they would be purified and then able to offer worship. The various fees robbed the poor and did so in God's name under the greedy eye of the Roman Empire. Anyone who cared about justice or read the prophets would be outraged by such institutionalized injustice. It is only natural that Jesus took action to protest this big corporate imperial religious ripoff. As others have noted, Jesus did not merely want to lower prices for the poor. He did not seek to reform the temple. Through this symbolic action, he called for an end to the entire temple system. With this action, he announced that God was present within every person. Present whenever two or three are gathered to pray in his name. Present in the hungry, in the sick, in the imprisoned. Present in the breaking of the bread and the passing of the cup. Present in spirit and in truth. Of course, this action and those teachings threatened and outraged the religious authorities. Their economic and political privilege would end if Christ's teachings were adopted. And so they had to kill him. But in the church and elsewhere, the question inevitably comes up. Yes, but didn't Jesus chase people out of the temple with a whip? Isn't that violent? Some of you remember El Greco's unhelpful painting of the cleansing of the temple of Jesus. A couple more are going to flip through there. They depict Jesus with a raised arm, grasping a 20-foot-long whip, ready to strike a group of people, including terrified women. John Deere, the author of The Nonviolent Life and the coordinator of chaplains for the Red Cross in New York, says, he says, I insist El Greco was wrong. Jesus did not use violence. He never hurt anyone. He never struck anyone. He never killed anyone. But he did not tolerate injustice, greed, hypocrisy, or untruth. He confronted systematic injustice head on, 
as his disciples, Gandhi and Martin Luther King would later do, and gave his life for God's reign of justice and peace, but he always did so through meticulous nonviolence. The only mention of the rope or the whip is in John's gospel. Written decades after the other gospels, John changes the entire plot line. He begins his gospel with Jesus' nonviolent direct action in the temple, but he has a completely different agenda. His gospel describes the signs and the wonders, often a series of self-describes I am sayings, and culminates with the dramatic raising of Lazarus, Lazarus from the dead. And with that, he takes us to the Last Supper, where Jesus offers a lengthy reflection and teaching before his arrest. And throughout John's gospel, like the others, Jesus is perfectly nonviolent. Indeed, he, he speaks more about nonviolent love, the agape love, more than any other gospel. With the cleansing of the temple, John paints Jesus as a prophetic Jeremiah figure. With the mention of the whip, he amps up the drama and then resets the focus on Jesus' impending resurrection. See, we're told that Jesus made a whip from cords and drove out the oxen, the sheep, and the doves, and everyone else. And he goes on to say that long ago at his Jesuit school of theology, his scripture teacher explained that this was the only instance in the entire Bible of the particular obscure Greek word translated as rope or whip. To get thousands of sheep and oxen and doves into this enormous structure, the cattlemen used ropes to lead them up to a high stone walkway then into the building. And Jesus simply takes those ropes which the cattle, sheep, and oxen would have recognized to lead the animals outside. And then he overturned the banker's tables and launched into his speech. But he didn't take a rope and whip and start striking people. Although some translations would lead you to believe so, his scripture professor said no. That would be entirely inconsistent with Jesus and how he's portrayed through John's gospel as well as the other gospels. Jesus was nonviolent from the garden to the land of Canaanite, from Bethlehem to the cross and back to Galilee. And with such spectacular nonviolence, one cannot even imagine Jesus striking the poor animals. Indeed, he was liberating them from their impending execution. I want to invite the band back on stage. I'm going to read a passage from Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus, shaped by the stories of the Old Testament himself, began to communicate a better message, a better story, a story that his followers were to be shaped by. Matthew 5, verse 38, Jesus says, You've heard it said... You were shaped by this story that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, give them your coat too. And when they force you to go one mile, which was the law you had to go, you had to carry the, the, the soldier's gear for a mile if, if you were um, under their oppression. He says, go with them too. 
If your job is to make cakes for people and someone comes to you and wants a cake that you don't maybe agree with them, Jesus says to make them two cakes. Give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. That is the law of love. You've heard it said that it, that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of the Father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do that? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete and showing love to everyone, so also must you be complete. The headline read this week, 12 dead in a nightclub in California. Worst mass shooting in the United States in 12 days. Let that sink in. The worst mass shooting in 12 days. These are the stories that are shaping us and shaping our kids. And we've been shaped by it for so long that we would rather design bulletproof backpacks instead of doing something about the access to guns. We love violence. We have to let ourselves be shaped by a different story. We have to tell better stories for our grandkids. The ancient people of God were shaped by story. They were shaped by the story of God rescuing them from slavery. They were shaped by the story of God when they were wandering through the wilderness. They were shaped by the story of God when they entered into the promised land. They were also shaped by the story of violence and tribalism. The stories of our past and our present, they shape, our stories of our past shape our present. The stories of our present shape our future. And the stories that we live under is the story that we'll live out. You, me, them, we all belong to a beloved creator. We belong to a God who will do whatever it takes to restore that creation. But we have to realize that it's our job to tell that story. To lay down our weapons, to choose nonviolence, and to follow Jesus. I want you to listen to this song. Perhaps make it a prayer and then I'll come back and close this. A fish is born into water, but the fish doesn't realize it until it finds itself outside of the water, gasping for air. Our story of humanity has its beauty, but it also has its ugliness. Violence and tribalism seems to be the loudest story. It's the story that we were born into. We're shaped by stories intentionally or unintentionally, fed by our culture. And our choice is to open our eyes and see the beauty, to, to see common good, to tell a different story 
with our power and our privilege and our money and our time and how we treat one another and how we see other people. Culture tells a story, but we need to tell a better story. How do we live in this age of us versus them, whether it's political divide or national divide or religious and theological divide? I want to strongly suggest that not only should it be nonviolent, but with what Jesus taught, enemy love. Not just feel-good feelings, but hard-fought love for those with whom we disagree. What does it mean right now to follow Jesus when violence is our story? Stockpiling weapons for the apocalypse or self-preservation, drawing more lines between us and them? Or we choose to stand together with love? Listen, I know this is not a probably one of my most popular messages and might not go over well with some of you. You may feel it political. Jesus showed up on a scene where the empire was in control and everything he said and, said and did opposed the empire. And as his followers were called to be people of the kingdom, not people of the empire, we need to tell a better story. I want to close with a statement from our author. He says, I'm a committed follower of Jesus and Christ taught the greatest commandment was to love, to love God, self, and neighbor. Yes, but to go further, to love beyond the normal limits, to love the stranger, the alien, the outsider, the outcast, the misunderstood, the misjudged, the disinherited, even the opponent and the enemy. The apostle Paul built on what Jesus taught. Without love, we're nothing. Just a bunch of annoying noise, he said, that you can have mountain-moving faith, and we might add creed-affirming doctrines. But without love, he said, it has no meaning or value. Love fulfills the law, he said. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. And if Jesus and Paul were right, then love is always in season. But here in America, every Two and four years, we have national elections. In order to win elections, politicians and political parties often scapegoat and vilify their neighbors instead of loving them and pour gasoline on dying embers of racism, prejudice, and bigotry. In order to win for us, they are willing to throw them under the bus. And then when the election is over, they leave the nation a mess, wounded, divided, scarred, suspicious, The winner's proud and the loser's humiliated. The beautiful mess is a little messier and a little less beautiful. And that's why we need to raise a banner of love right now. That's why the real campaign isn't Republican versus Democrats or conservatives versus liberals. The real campaign is the campaign of love versus hate, prejudice, indifference, and fear. This campaign has been uglier than most. Vicious, hurtful, and dangerous things have been said. Lies have been treated as truth. Many boundaries of political civility and human decency have been crossed. And in the face of all that noise, it's tempting to just withdraw and walk away. But the great Lutheran theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Dr. King said, Our lives begin the day I'm sorry. He says, our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. If we refuse to remain silent, 
we face another temptation to mirror the ugliness and division with ugliness and division. And Shane Claiborne says that if you fight fire with fire, you just get a bigger fire. Or a wise Jewish sage put it this way, a soft answer turns away wrath. So we need to respond to evil not with silence and not with more evil, but with greater good. We need to respond to fear and despair, not with more fear and despair, but with confidence and hope. And we need to respond to hate, not with more hate, but with love. Only love can heal what's broken, whether in our families, our friendships, our neighborhoods, nations. Only love never fails. So he says, I hope you'll join me to stand with love. Love for those who are not like us. And love for those who are. Love for people we agree with and those that we disagree with. Love for the winners and losers, the insiders and outsiders, the majority and the minority, the privileged and the excluded, the powerful and powerless. God loves everyone, no exceptions. He says, so join me in the mission to stand with love.